Please turn in uh, your copy of God's Word or the Pew Bible to Luke 15. In the, the Pew Bible, I believe that's page 874. For the next few weeks, we'll be in Luke before we hit pause. Jesus has a way of communicating both in word and in deed. And when he teaches, when he instructs, uh, so often he utilizes, he employs parables. Perhaps probably the most beloved uh, parable of all, uh, you know, of all time, of all of, of human history. Uh, probably the best, best known parable, aside from maybe, the, maybe, only, maybe only second to the parable of the Good Samaritan, is this parable that we're about to read about the lost son. Remember last week I talked about how there's three parables here. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And that's where we're going to focus is the lost son this morning. But just as a reminder that Jesus, in his own creative but compassionate way last week, insulted us uh, by calling us sheep. Uh, sheep are, are, are dumb animals. They're stubborn animals. They, they, need, uh, you know, they need to be uh, herded together. They need to, they need to be protected. They're, they're helpless, sometimes altogether clueless. And, uh, and that's us, without God at the center of our lives, without his wisdom, without his voice, uh, that we are just wandering further and further away, very, very stubborn. And, uh, and that's why God said last week that as the good shepherd, he doesn't come to his sheep and say, oh, would you please follow me home now? Because sheep don't do that. Your dog does. Your cat, that's a different story. And I made some enemies last week because of a comment about that. Sorry. But if you have a dog, it follows you home. If you have a sheep... The shepherd has to go to a faraway land and says, you wandering sheep, throws it on the ground, has to tie the legs of the sheep together and throws the sheep over his shoulder to make that sheep go home. Sheep's glad when it gets back to the pastures and under the care of the good shepherd, but there's a process there, right? And we were, we were, we were labeled sheep last week. Now we come to the story of the prodigal son. Or another way of looking at it, or another way of describing it is the parable of the lost sons, plural, there's two sons here, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll unpack what I mean and what that entails. And why is it that, and by the way, God, the, the, the father in the story represents God that we're about to read together. The story is a story about the emptiness and the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, the story is also about the problem and uh, the deceitfulness of self-righteousness. It's also a story about just... The dysfunction and the tragedy of brokenness and family relationships, and maybe you can identify, and some of the ramifications of those broken relationships, if you know what I mean. So, I know you just sat down. Let me invite you to stand again. Let's show deference to God's Word. I'm going to read the opening two verses, and then we'll look at the end of the chapter. Hear this. This is the Word of God, Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors, because I want to set the context, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Tells the two parables we studied last week, and then continue down with verse 11. And he said, that is Jesus, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young... The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out 
to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one ever, no one gave him anything. But, verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And he said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us hear Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Verse 25, now his older brother was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask for God's help. Father, we do need, we do desire your help. We know that there is hope and there is health and life if we would build on you the rock and refuge that we need, and not on the shifting sands of the world and our own feelings and imagination. So please, Holy Spirit, take the word and birth and bring forth faith in our hearts and love in our hearts as we try to understand your love. Through Christ we ask this. Amen. Back in the 90s, uh, I began listening to a folk rock band uh, called Eddie from Ohio. And uh, name notwithstanding, they're actually from Virginia, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but they, I, one of the reasons that I like folk rock music sometimes is because there's often a story that unfolds. And in this particular song, it's called, um, the name of the song is I Don't Know Me. And in the story, the singer reflects on how she's been faithful. She's been faithful to her spouse. She's been faithful to her dog. She's always attended the Anglican church at the top of the hill. She talks about how she mows her grass on Saturdays. She's lived a responsible kind of life. And she's even paid her utilities, mostly on time. But one impulsive moment on a Saturday, in the song she describes how she goes and she steals her neighbor's bike. And by bike, I mean Harley Davidson. And she rides it around the block. And she realizes she actually enjoys this. She's not embarrassed at all that she stole the Harley Davidson and she wrecks it and drives it right through the neighborhood picnic. And it doesn't bother her a bit. And then she has this moment where she realizes in the chorus, this is what it says. I don't think I know me as well as I thought I did. 
Well, it takes a posture of humility to say that, to come to the realization that we're not, we're not quite as aware of our badness as we realize. I'm not. I don't think I know me as well as I thought I did. Well, the truth is, unless we get the clarity of God's word raised up in front of us as a mirror, as a source, as a voice of wisdom, then we won't have a clear understanding of who we are, truly. Jeremiah 17, the prophet says, inspired of God, that the heart is wicked, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Well, we have in God's word tremendous life and light. There's different you know, elements and, and aspects, surprising elements sometimes, especially for the original audience that Jesus would have brought forth when he employs this parable and teaches us about the Father and God our Father and then our predicament and the God of salvation. And maybe it leaves us thinking, I don't think I know God as well as I thought I did. That's a humble statement. And that is true. And I'm sure that people that day, if they walked by faith and embraced what Jesus said in this parable, they came to the realization, maybe I don't know God or myself as well as I thought that I did. The emphasis here is not merely on the younger prodigal son. And the emphasis is not merely on the, the father. The emphasis is also, I, I would say it, it, it spans both. It spans both sons and the father in this parable. And here's how I want to break it down. I've listed it there in the order of service. It's the rebellion of the younger son, the rejoicing of the merciful father, and then we see last the resentment of the older son. The rebellion of the younger son, the son imagines that he would have freedom. He wants the freedom that he imagines will be away from, you know, the confines and all the responsibilities of the farm and the family. He wants to just go away. The problem is he needs money, right? He needs money to make that happen, to live alone. So he goes to his father. And by the way, in that day and age, if it were to happen that you would get, this would have been a really big deal. And they would have, they would have dialed into this, uh, the elements of this parable. The older son in that day in an ancient Near Eastern culture, the oldest son, the older son would have gotten an, an additional share than younger. So in this situation, there would have been a third of what the, the father had that would have been a proceed in his inheritance to go to the younger son. But it's so insulting. It's so painful. If you could just imagine what that conversation was like when he went to his father, and he said, hey, listen, you know that inheritance? I, I actually I, I, I want it now. And can you imagine the father saying, but son, you don't understand the terms of that inheritance come, you know, it matures when I die. And then in essence, the, fun, the, the, the son says, well, father, that's kind of the point. I, I'd rather you be dead. So give me so that I can go. And the father does this. He, he, he has to sell off part of the land. He takes the money and he wants to leave and he leaves. The father's love and a relationship with the father is rejected. The son didn't want the father. The son wanted the, the father's stuff. And he envisions a life of liberty, following his dreams, his passions, his desires, not having to answer to anyone, no restraint. He thinks that a life of pleasure is a life of joy, a life of fulfillment. That's how he approaches life. Verse 13 says it was what? It was reckless living. 
Now, I'm sure it didn't seem to him at the time reckless. It seemed like nothing but fun, loads of fun. And it was until it wasn't. Right? It's like technology. Technology is great until it's not. And we rely upon that. <laughs> and if you're, relying upon, if you're relying upon fulfilling your desires and just going out and doing whatever you know, impulse you have and spending away, then you do realize that sometimes what actually visits us is not freedom but bondage. There's an emptiness there. This is us sometimes. We want, we want the gifts that God gives, but we don't want God's authority or relationship we want, we want the good gifts. We don't want the gift giver. Many people live this way. We'd rather make our own rules, live our own lives according to our own impulses. And that can work for a time. But that freedom of ignoring... We think that there's freedom in ignoring God's law and disregarding God's love. And then it brings us into bondage and we find ourselves empty trying to chase after this freedom. And just to punctuate, by the way, the desperation that the son realizes... That where the predicament he's got himself into here of all places, right? Verse 14, it says there was a great famine that came and then he realized how much he was in need. He spent it all. But then to punctuate it, there was a famine or in our day, there was a pandemic. Right. And, and that pandemic has brought some people to the end of themselves. For various reasons, like it or not. And. Would that we see this as a mercy of God that he would actually come to the end of himself. But it's, it's even worse. It's so bad. And Jews understand this. For a, Jewish, for a Jewish young man to get so low that he would go and live and work amongst the pigs, which is holy and ceremonially and dietarily unclean. Can you imagine? That's how bad it is. He's longing for the things that the pigs are eating. Verse 17, by the mercy of God, it says, look at the text there, what happened? But when he came to himself, or as some translations say, when he came to his senses. Thank God he did. He, have you ever felt that, by the way? Have you ever felt the emptiness of living in, in sin and your selfish impulses and you think I thought this was going to bring me happiness and now all I feel is guilt and shame and loss he's broken and praise God this son remembers the love of his father he remembers his father and what does he say to himself Verse 18, he says, I will rise now and I'm going to go to my father. He didn't say, I'm going to go back to my community. I just want to go back to what's familiar. I'm going to go to my father. I know him. There's a humility here because he doesn't just sit there and wallow in self-pity and blame everybody else. I had my plan in place and now it's gone sour. No, 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 no. He takes personal responsibility. Even in rehearsing the speech that he would give his dad in verse 18, he thinks to himself, I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven, which is to say God, vertically, and you horizontally. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. He's got this in, in view and he has this in mind. He begins the journey home. And, and just imagine as he's making that journey home, he was a faraway land. He had plenty of time to rehearse the speech to get things all ready so that when he saw his father, not knowing how the father would respond, he's beginning to say, okay, let me get this down, right? 
I'm going to talk about how I'm going to become a hired servant. I, I, I won't even ask to live on the property. Slaves do that. I'll be an outside servant. I'll work really hard. I, I, Father, I'll prove myself. I, I, I will pay back. I know that I'm indebted to you. I will, I will come up with the money. I will earn my way back into the house. He has this whole speech set in mind. I know that speech because I've had that speech internally. I thought to myself, Father, I'll feel really bad. Let me just, before I come to you with my sin and shame and guilt, let me just feel bad for like three solid days. And that's not how it works. And we know it's not how it works because what does it say? The people in the town evidently saw him coming, alert the father. The father is there standing. And this would have been scandalous in and of itself. The community knows what he did. The community imagines what the father feels. And it's so surprising. It's, it's utterly shocking. So let's move on to this next observation, which is the rejoicing of the merciful father. We see in verse 20, the affections, the intentions, the disposition, the heart of the father. But just, again, before we kind of dig into that, consider how this would have sounded and appeared to the original Audience, It's altogether counterintuitive and countercultural. Scholars of ancient, ancient Near Eastern culture will highlight the fact that there is something deeply wrong. It's altogether insulting the way the son left and then the way the father responded when the son returned. Ken Bailey, who is uh, a scholar who's written extensively on this, he's traveled and he's studied ancient and modern cultures similar to this. And he, he, goes, he goes to them and says, let me give you a scenario how would this happen? They say it wouldn't happen. He wouldn't do that. And when they came back, the father, they think this story is nonsense because they would say it, it wouldn't be like that. The father in, in that culture, the father would have met him at, at the gate and he would have beat the son violently, perhaps. We might expect, even if our, even if our, our idea, our notion of God The father is skewed. We might imagine that the father stands there at the gate with his arms crossed saying, well, this better be good. Yeah, you know, fully folded arms. I'm ready. You better better be really good. You know, we're not into, you know, we're not into violence, so we'll just we'll just make him suffer. Father's not going to hear the speech, though. Because verse 20, he's going to be interrupted by, of all things, the compassion of his father. He runs, which again is not to take up, to take up and to run would have been totally inappropriate. There's a Chinese artist who tried to capture a depiction of this scene. And a Christian friend of his said, no, I think you got it wrong because of the disposition of the father. He's just standing there. He should have been running. The guy redid the, redid the painting to try to more accurately de- depict it. And in the depiction, the father had two different shoes on. Why? Because he couldn't get out the door fast enough to run and to greet him. And it says that he, he, he embraced him and he kissed him. 
And it was before the repentance. Before he could say anything. It's just unthinkable. This is where the parable is just like the two preceding ones. Because the one who has this treasured, prized, precious thing. When found, rejoices. And the father says, we've got to have a party right now. I don't care what rags you're wearing. We're putting a robe on you. We're going to celebrate and have a feast right now. And it's not going to be private. It's not going to be between you and me. Everyone needs to come and we will have this great banquet. Give him the finest robe robe and kill the calf. Look again at the text. Verse 24. For this, my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Many celebrated. I'm sure many were there puzzled. You know, shocked, stunned that the father was doing this. But they still joined the celebration. But there was one who could not, who would not celebrate. And that was the older brother. He's deeply offended. He is so angry. But before we even look at why that is. Don't miss the fact that it's the compassionate, merciful love of the father who goes and pursues him outside. He finds out that the the son, the older son, the elder son won't come in. He goes out and what does it say? He, He entreats him to come in. And he won't. He's rude to the father. He won't even acknowledge it. Notice, by the way, verse 30, when he's explaining why he won't come in, what does he say in verse 30? The older son says, but when this son of yours, he can't even call him his brother. When this son of yours goes and takes your property with prostitutes, you decide to kill the fattened calf? The father, of course, replies in verse 32, we have to rejoice. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother. He didn't agree with him. He didn't say this son of mine. He says, this is your brother. And we had to celebrate. We get to celebrate. And then what is the, what does he do? The older brother begins in verse 29 to boast of his own record. I've been dutiful. I have, I've obeyed your commandments. I have been obedient. Where's my party? Where's my stuff? What does he say? What does he say? He's, He's, he's so angry, he's confused, he doesn't understand. I've never dis- verse 20, I've never disobeyed your commandment, yet you never gave me a young goat. But then the response of the father is, listen, verse 31, he said to him, son, you're always with me, with me and all that I have, all that is mine is yours. Sadly, The resentment and the posture of the older brother shows that he too was lost. Sure, he lives in close proximity. And for that time, the younger brother lived in a far distant land who was squandering away the family's money. And he was obviously lost. But the other son is lost just the same in close proximity because he's alienated from the father's love and the father's heart. He doesn't understand the father's heart. He should at the very least be able to rejoice that his father is delighted that his son is home. 
but he can't see his brother or his father. All he can see is himself. You see, the younger brother and the older brother wanted stuff from the father and not the relationship. Both of them, in essence, wanted to use the father. Now, it's the younger brother, of course, that's now we know is restored. He's reconciled. He's forgiven. But we don't even know the rest of the story. It's, it's a cliffhanger at the end. We don't know what happens to the elder brother. There's a reason that I read the first two verses of Luke 15 before we got to this parable. Let's go back. Remember the audience? Remember who's grumbling in verse 2? It's the Pharisees. It's the religious people. They don't understand this. And he, Jesus, is holding up. This is... The story would not have ended. There's no way for the story to end just with the younger brother prodigal coming home. It has to end with Jesus describing the elder brother. Because Jesus wants to hold up the mirror and say, this is you. You don't understand. You can't, you can't see that I rejoice over sinners being restored. I rejoice in the people who are lesser and immoral coming and repenting. And you can't see that. What about me? This is, the, this is the speech the son has. He's holding up a mirror to hopefully for them to see that the grace of God isn't too lavish. It's totally appropriate. It's not over the top. It includes reaching out to the immoral and the unclean people that you think don't deserve this. He's saying this is not just. This is not fair. What about me? I deserve this. I kept your law. Where's my blessings? I've been good. Why don't I get to enjoy this? He even uses the term in verse 29, I've been serving, which is the same word as slaving. This is a completely distorted understanding. Father, I've I've been working myself to the bone. Where's my blessing? The blessing's always been there. But it was the love that was most important, the relationship. But he's lost that. He's been blinded and deceived by his own self-assessment of righteousness. Friends, what about you? Are, Are you keeping score? Do you think the Father, our Heavenly Father, do you think that He is scorekeeping? All of us do at times. We think we are moral. We assume that even though we're not perfect, nobody is. We've tried really hard and there's tons of people out there that we're a lot better than and they are less deserving and we are. If you're prone to be like the Pharisees here, and all of us at times can be a moralist, it shows up, by the way, in how you think of God. It shows up how you relate and think of others. It shows up in how you handle criticism, how you handle disappointment. This week, Chris and I got in a huge argument. We call them a heated moment of fellowship. This one was really bad, like... It was probably years overdue, building up. And when our arguments happen, the big ones, it's always right before church or community group. This week it was before community group, right? It was not pretty. It was one of those that you're so upset that you're tempted to give the person the silent treatment, but then every once in a while you want so bad to get the point in that I'm literally running down the stairs to talk to her in the laundry room so I can just give her a piece of my mind, even though I want to give her the silent treatment. Have you ever been there? (laughs) 
It was so bad that Kristen decided not to attend community group. And when we got to the prayer time at the end of community group, I said, everyone just pray that Krista will come to her senses and see that she is wrong and that I am right. Now, they knew I was joking. They knew I was joking. I threw myself under the bus on that one. But I was wrong. Okay, maybe both of us were wrong. But my anger stemmed from my own proud, moralist, older brother mindset. I thought I deserved something. There's a scholar, Leon Morris, who writes, the proud and the self-righteous always feel that they're not treated well as well as they deserve. A common human failing, see if you can hear yourself, a common human failing is to think that we are not appreciated as we ought to be, that people do not give us credit for what we have done. Have mercy, Lord. I read this parable to um, one of our kids in the car this week. It's obvious that God represents the Father. I said, who represents the son? What do the sons represent? And my child said, well, bo- both of us, I mean, all of us are represented in both the older and the younger brother. I, I could be the younger and the older brother in the same span of like 24 hours. I don't think I know me as well as I thought I did. I can be a rebel and a moralist all in the same day. I don't think I need God's law. I don't think I need God's love. The ways that I relate to him and show others exposes that I don't know God's love and his law and his grace. And I desperately do need his mercy. I've been sinful and selfish and lost. And at the same time, I've been religious and moral and proud and smug and lost. But not really, because he pursues me. He pursues us, his sons and daughters. Perhaps you can relate. But what would motivate us to surrender? Right? What would bring us to a place of repentance for our pride and our assumptions and presumptions and our our self-righteous, what would bring us to a place of surrender and repentance that says, I need to go home. I'm not in the right place. I need to have that difficult conversation and I need to, I need to go to my spouse and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Or whatever it looks like to come home in repentance, what would compel us? Father, in his mercy, we think, well, it doesn't really cost him that much. Like, why don't he just like, he could just overlook the fact that his son left with all that money and they just continue on. It's not that costly, but it does cost. It actually costs the older brother, if you think about it, in the parable. Remember how he said to the son, the older son, 
when he goes outside, won't you come into the party? All that I have is yours, the father says to him. And that's right, isn't it? Because the, the other portion, the inheritance, is already gone. So whose robe and whose ring and whose calf? It's the older brother. Because whatever is the father's is going to be his in the inheritance. And now the younger brother comes back and he's going to get that? This is actually the difference between all of them are similar. All of them are, are, are essentially the same. The three parables in Luke 15. Except the other one, the shepherd goes searching and the, with the coin, remember the, 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 the woman goes and she searches and searches and won't stop until she finds the lost coin. But here, the father's at home. Now, why is that? What would Jesus have us see in the telling of this story? Except that maybe it would have been the job and the responsibility after a time for the elder brother to go and search for him. To restore him, to draw him back. Pastor Tim Keller, in an excellent book, if you really want to ponder and meditate on this parable, he writes all about it in Prodigal God. It's a wonderful book I commend to you. He unpacks it all. He talks about in the book how Edmund Clowney, who's a professor that he and I both had, recounts the true story of a young man who was a U.S. soldier who was missing in action during the Vietnam War. And when the family could get no word of him through all the official channels, the older brother... True story, literally, of his own expense, at his own risk, got on a plane and flew to Vietnam to go and search through the jungles and the battlefields for his lost brother. It's said that despite the danger, he was never hurt because those on both sides had heard of the dedication and they respected his quest. Some of them simply called this man the brother. This, my friends, is what the elder brother in the parable should have done. This is what a true elder brother would have done. He would have said, Father, my younger brother's been a fool. His life is now in ruins, and now I will go and search for him and restore him. What a difference. Friends, we have a perfect elder brother. Jesus. And he knows the Father's heart. And he knows the Father's way of rejoicing when sinners come home. Over children being called back and adopted. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's left the praises of the glory of the majesty of heaven. And he entered into our pigsty. He became humiliated. Shame, shamefully. Scorned and naked that we might be clothed. That we might be clothed with his righteousness. All the places that Jesus refers to him as Father on the cross, he says, My God, the only time, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was closed off from fellowship for a time from the Father, taking our sins so that we could be restored and brought home, so that we could call him Father. He became poor that we might know 
his riches. He lived the righteous life that we didn't nor couldn't so that, like I said, we could be clothed in righteousness. That's the only thing that will truly compel us and move us to follow him, to, to surrender, and to treat others in like fashion, to understand. I'm going to pray for us. And as I do, I just I want to highlight this. This past um, week, I had a chance to go and sit with uh, Emily in the hospital, Emily Layton, for several hours, and she's not well. So I'm going to pray for her. I'm going to ask you to join with me. I'm grateful that of all things right now, she's still so amazed by the love of the Father for her. Father, we're grateful today that we can call you Father. We're sorry for the times that we've been proud and confused when we've, we've wanted your gifts, but we didn't want you. We wanted your stuff, but we didn't want a relationship. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for pursuing us in the person and work of Jesus. Thank you for your spirit who draws us, who softens us. Lord, help us to listen. Help us to, to shed the self-righteousness and the foolishness of sin. Help us to walk in the light. Lord, we do pray today. So we think about people who are struggling. Uh, people are struggling in relationships. People are struggling in their workplace and with their health. And they would love to have some good news, but they don't right now. We especially remember our dear sister that we love so much, Emily. We pray that you would give her relief Thank you that she loves you so much. She understands that. And we pray that you, even though she's confused right now about something that's going on with her, we pray that you would comfort her. Pray that physicians and other providers would have great insight on how to best care for her. We pray for Matt. Pray for Amanda, Noah, Riley May, that you would comfort them, that you would be and shine forth as the Prince of Peace that you truly are. That you would comfort and guide them right now. Guide us all. Lord, we look at a world that's confused and filled with conflict. And our hearts ache. And, and then we pray, Lord, that you would come back. Right now, I pray that you, this very day, would be so pleased as to return and restore all things. Make all things right and all things new. That you would rain down and shower forth mercy and justice. For this we ask in Jesus' good and sufficient name, even now as he taught his disciples to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom 